pushed all of it underground, people still saw therapeutic advantages that they could gain from using these compounds and continue to research them and use them and find ways that they could help people with PTSD and depression and all the things that we just discussed. And now pharmaceutical companies are like, oh, wait a second. Oh, this works? Oh, fantastic, great. Let me go ahead and patent that. They knew it worked, but it was also made very hard to work with these substances because where are you yes, gonna get it yes. from, right? And yes, now that yes, a lot of yes, states yes. are, the progressive states are starting to decriminalize and even legalize recreational use of some of these, it's easier to find the compounds to even get them to study them. And now we have right, the evidence right. in academic settings that we've known for so long to be true and showing and demonstrating through scientific method, these are effective, they work. And so not like I'm ever gonna be defending pharmaceutical companies, but it's not that they were saying, we are not going to do this because we can't make a profit on it. It was actually very hard to study these and to test them and develop them until people started pushing for this legalization and now it's opened up a whole new pathway. The nefarious-ish part in my view is the patenting, that's messed up. These can really help so many people. They could be so affordable, so accessible, and you know, of course, of course, America's you know business is business. You got to make money on it. So it's all about that patent. Thanks for listening to Noise Filter, your public health podcast. You are tuned in sure. to KBOO Portland, ninety point seven on your FM dial. This is Emma. I am a co-host of Trans Positive here on KBOO Community Radio, and I'm also the current president of the Board of Directors of KBOO. Uh, before we start the show today, I just want to remind you that um, if you can, please go to kboo.fm give and give. At KBOO, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Your friends here at KBOO Community Radio want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBOO supporters from all around the world and let's rally together to build stronger communities. Our goal for this year is $70,000 for our end of the year membership drive. We are community funded and we need your support to get there. So please just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to this number. Four four three two one, and now on to our show. Um, good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio, and we're talking uh, tonight with author Sandra Eater. Sandra, welcome to Transpositive. Thank you for having me. Thank I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, uh, Sandra. You wrote a book recently. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, I wrote a book about the history of gender. So I often call it um, kind of a medical history of gender. And then people start to say, what do you mean a medical history of gender? And so it's a book about my, in a way my research took me uh, to find that gender is an invention and gender was invented in, a cl in the clinic in the 1950s. So that's a lot of things that came together that really intrigued me. And I wanted to find out more about why clinician researchers in the 1950s saw the need to kind of coin this new category of gender role uh, for their clinical practice. And then in the book, I explore this history and then follow kind of the idea of gender uh, within the clinic and outside of the clinic as it becomes a category that is taken up and picked up by a broader public and different groups. Great. Well, I really look forward to uh, getting into the, uh, talking about your books. What is the book's title? 
the book's title is How the Clinic Made Gender, The Medical History of a Transformative Idea. Great, thank you. Uh, so we'll get into your book in just a minute, but first I'd just like to find out a little bit more about you. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sandra. Um, I'm a medical historian who's interested in gender, sex, and sexuality. So I work a lot in my research is focused on gender and sexu sex and sexuality. I am also interested in clinical practices and uh, patients' perspectives. And I am an assistant professor at the history department at UC Berkeley. And yeah. I think, I Great. don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for giving us that. Um, so let's start talking about your book. Uh, first of all, um, now, now when you say that you think gender was, uh, when you say in your book that gender was invented in the 1950s, um, most people know, like most people know the the stories in the Bible, in the Christian Bible or in the Quran or other like origination narratives um, where people refer to words that are very gendered, man, woman, you know, ish, aish. There's like a whole set of words going all the way back that seem to imply gender. So how do you respond to that idea that gender was invented in the 1950s when you look at what, hist what history says about gender. Could, mm -hmm. could you talk about that to, just to help us kind of understand more okay. about what gender is? That makes perfect sense. So let me clarify a little bit. So when I'm saying a little provocative agenda was invented in the 1950s, then I'm saying that uh, gender to describe uh, a particular relationship between nature and culture uh, and uh, human behavior uh, was invented uh, in the 1950s to solve questions uh, about sex, sex assignment, behavior uh, uh, that the clinician researchers were struggling with. So it's a particular context. So gender for me describes the relationship between nature and biology and how it affects uh, nature biology and culture and how it affects uh, human behavior and the idea of gender as a category separate from sex is what i'm looking at so i'm looking at the idea of a gender role obviously people have talked and debated the meanings of sex of masculinity of femininity of male and female uh over um centuries before because these uh, positions and these kind of our uh, qualifiers come with certain uh, rights or you know uh, and and privileges or the lack thereof and positions in society so those are crucial categories but what I am particularly reading on is kind of this idea of a sex gender binary that is causing a lot of debate these days and I was really interested to look at so when did we first start talking about gender, general as a kind of a gender as a culture, culturally determined uh, um, um, kind of variant of sex? And so that's what I'm looking at, and that's what I'm saying is the thing that invented in the clinic and formulated in the clinic in the 1950s. Thank you. Um, so an another kind of a basic question, just to kind of help establish terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody understands, I think, uh, even I have problems with it sometimes. What is the difference between sex and gender? I mean, not sex as a, uh, as, as, as an act, uh, something that people refer to when they're talking about an action, but what is the difference between sex as a category and gender? So, I can give you the answer of what I'm establishing in this book, uh, what I can see. So as a historian, I'm interested in kind of um, what, how people in different time periods answer that question differently, right? It's a shift in category over time. And that's for me as a historian is what's interesting. And that's kind of the center of this book. And what we have uh, uh, in this time period is a shift away to saying a person's sex, whether they're considered male or female, 
whether they can live as men and women is not defined by their anatomical features, but this atom uh, is defined by the gender role, and that's a term they use first, and then it changes to gender identity. Um, uh, in uh, a decade later, gender identity is ad ad um, added, but it uh, affects the uh, that gender role is learned. It's something that is uh, um, um, influenced by uh, the way in which they grow up and are perceived by society, the, the way in which they're raised. And so that's that particular, that's the particular version of gender and sex, the gender sex binary in a way that I'm looking at. However, what I'm trying to show in the book is that that's a dynamic category and it changes over time. And the context in which these uh, questions are discussed uh, uh, shift slightly, and the and the the relationship between this category shifts over time, depending on who's talking about it and what kind of um, and how it uh, what kind of power relations are at stake. So 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 that's kind of exactly what you're asking me is exactly the kind of history I'm tracing. So I'm not uh, as a historian in this book. Um, just for the purposes of maybe asking uh like the same question in a different way is 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 it possible that you could just take gender and sex and put them into the same category why don't they just why isn't just the same word why are there two different words so the reason why they come up with a new word so gen i mean obviously gender the term has been around but it wasn't used in this particular in this particular way um uh until um, the, uh, the, the concept of a gender role is developed in the clinic. But I think to give you an example to make this a little bit more tangible is, is the reason why they start talking about, about it because they uh, come to a point in this clinic, this is the clinic of pediatric endocrinology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, where they are treating uh, um, and researching, pursuing um, uh, research with children with intersex traits. So children who do not fit into this kind of sexual binary of male or female. And one of the, um, and as they are engaging with these children and as clinicians uh, um, and their families, um, they feel they need to give an answer on what sex should be assigned to these children who do not fit in, who kind of, uh, uh, show a wider variation of what it means to be male and female, right? They don't quite fit into this binary. And so because they feel there's a social obligation, there's a, a social necessity to assign uh, either sex and decide on either sex, they're trying to find the correct or the true sex, but they realize that it often is not in sync with behavior, with how these children are raised. And sometimes often these children come in later, they're a little bit older, and it doesn't fit the biological categories that they would have kind of um, um, decided would be the dominant one. And so gender role becomes in a way their solution. So gender role becomes in the study that they're doing there, they arguing, well, you know, uh, Actually, what we see in our when we're studying these children is that the general, the way they see themselves as male or female, goes uh, most of the time according to the way in which they're growing up, the sex that they're assigned at birth, and how they're growing up. And so, we should actually abandon to a certain extent this uh, biological categories of sex, but we can assign a sex to these children and gen and then the gender role will be, uh, will, will be, uh, will follow, uh, they will learn a gender role according to the, the sex they are, they're being raised in. And so kind of that's the, that's the clinical question that they are trying to solve, right, in their very normative understanding of uh, sex and gender. And so, so, uh, and that is what they come up with. And that's the particular relation with sex and gender role that I start with in the 1950s that I'm describing. That's why they're separating sex and gender role.
when clinicians were looking at this in the 1950s, they already had the idea of gender as a concept. So gender must mean something very specific and sex also means something specific within the lens of those 1950s clinicians. Mm -hmm. At that time, what does the word sex mean to a clinician? And at that time, what did the word gender mean to a clinician? Okay, to this particular group of clinicians and then the ones who follow them, uh, but this particular group, sex means anatomical features. So it means uh, it means uh, sex chromosome, gonads, hormones, uh, genitals, um, secondary reproductive organs. So that's for them is sex. And sex by that time, as you can say, I'm listing a couple of categories. So one of the things that they are struggling with is that sex has multiplied, but there's not one determinant uh, that they can say is uh, trumps the other. And most people uh, in this time period would say, well, it's chromosomal sex or it's um, uh, gonadal sex, but kind of whether you have testes or ovaries, that's kind of your true sex and that's how you should live. However, what these clinicians are saying, uh, dealing with the kind of uh, mul uh, uh, sorry, uh, what these uh, clinicians are saying, dealing with the kind of different variations that uh, of children with intersex traits and realizing that biology is actually indeed much more complicated than they're assuming, they are struggling to find which of these kind of contradicting sex categories um, they um, should, uh, should be the one that actually is the true anatomical sex. So for example, if there is a child who has, uh, as in the cases that I described, that has uh, double X chromosomes and internal female reproductive uh, organs, but then uh, has um, male appearing genitals and has lived as a, as, a, as a boy and identifies as a boy. So then the question that they're asking is, okay, what is their gender role? And gender role is the new term that they're bringing in. And gender role describes the multiple ways in which this child enacts their gender. It's performative, it's the way they behave. It's very normative uh, at this time. It's modeled on 1950s, very normative conceptions in the way they describe it. But it's basically the behavior of the child, how the child is perceived by society and how this perception of society then kind of uh, uh, creates this um, category um, category of gender role within them in a way. So they're not yet that ident identity that's the next step, but it's um, um, uh, a very functional way of talking about gender identity. So gender is kind of something that learned, learned behavior that becomes uh, so imprinted and ingrained in a child that that's the way they feel. What is so, so that's the differentiation that they're making at this time. Thank you. So um, just in, in my own words, to summarize how I understood what you said, gender is performative, it's cultural, uh, whereas sex uh, at the time understood is rooted in um, aspects of the body as it is um, identified by a scientist or a clinician or a doctor, what they see, their chromosomes, their outward appearing genitalia, their level of hormones. Mm -hmm. And then as they grow, as their body grows, their secondary sexual characteristics. So that's sex and the performance of a body within the larger culture, that's gender. Yes, and if I might just add, one of the things they say is that uh, gender is malleable in, in, in kind of the first two years of growing up, but then after a certain period, it becomes so ingrained that it is, uh, becomes very fixed and very core to the, to, to the child's identity and that it actually cannot be changed uh, even uh, if, uh, yeah, that it cannot and should not be changed. Why do you think that um, prior to and up to the 1950s, there was this, even during the 1950s, why do you, why do you imagine there was so much energy and so much interest generated in this idea 
so rigidly determining gender on the basis of sex when there are numerous examples in science of there are numerous examples of categories of I'm not sure what kind of word to use categories of being mm -hmm. for, for lack of a better word because we're talking about anything from the natural sciences to the physical sciences to the biological sciences where there are categories of things and maybe we've been talking metaphysics here there's categories of things and within those categories of things there are places where as the category that we're observing transitions into a different category, they're intermediate zones. I mean, this is very common. You can you can look at astronomy for examples of this. You can look at, you know, biology. You can look at the plant kingdom. You can. I mean, there are so many ways of investigating the natural world where there are always indeterminate and in between spaces. So why would human biology be any different and why wouldn't that be simply a base assumption of science that there are a category of people that are in between these other categorizations that they've made uh, and that that's just part of the natural world i think that's a great question and i think you're spot on you know bringing this up because so I'm trying to find, <laughs> and then I'm trying to find an answer that doesn't take that 10 minutes. So the short answer, I think, I think it's the way in which our society is organized, our social order, which is, you know, organized according to a differentiation by sex slash gender, if you take this as a category together. And I think that describes different roles and social positions and rights to people. And I think that organization is really essential that everything that transcends or intermediates or messes up this category is seen as problematic. So, and I think uh, there's plenty of research about, especially in the 1930s and especially in, the, in, in Europe about intermediate genders, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexuality that goes beyond kind of the heteronormative matrix. Uh, there's all kinds of research and acknowledgement that these things exist. And there were a lot of activists that try to categorize these, uh, the what they're finding this variation in, in a way in, you want to say nature, but I'm going to say in our world, in our social world that they're finding, but they are limited by their framework, by the way in which they approach, kind of the, uh, in, in a sense, one is the, their um, conceptualization. So if you think something is square, you're going to try to fit the round thing in, into the square thing and try to explain it within the square and why it doesn't fit the square. You're not going to think that maybe it's something that tells you maybe the square isn't enough to describe the world, right? <laughs> and so that's one thing. And, you know, we have, uh, so there's a, there's a, so that's one aspect. And I think the other aspect are really um, things that we can find of in the social and cultural environment in this time period. And I think uh, historians have addressed this, um, uh, for example, the idea, you know, there's a fear of sexual transgression, there's a fear of homosexuality. And if you cannot tell somebody's sex and or gender, then the problem is you cannot tell if this is a, a, a heterosexual relationship or if this is a homosexual relationship which is, which is condemned and seen as problematic in this time period, right? Or if you cannot tell if... Hi, this is Emma. I am a co-host of Transpositive here on KBU Community Radio, and also the president of the board of directors of KBU. And I just want to take a quick break here um, to remind you that uh, kbu.fm/give uh, is the place to go if you'd like to make a donation. Um, at KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Let your friends and family know that you believe that community radio matters. Join thousands of supporters of KBU from all around the world. Let's rally together to build a stronger community. 
Help us meet our end of the year membership drive goal of $70,000. We're community funded, so we need your support to get there. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to this number, 44321. Another example, if you, you know, if women cannot inherit property or cannot vote, it becomes essential to know whether if somebody is a, a man or woman, biologically or socially, right? And so I think there are, so that, I think there are concerns about people transgressing transpassing kind of uh, 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 over social and cultural borders. And we see that with anxieties about people passing as, um, uh, for example, people passing as white. So people passing, uh, pretending in a society that has become uh, bigger and 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 less uh, people know each other less. There are more urban spaces, so you cannot tell who the person is that you that you're meeting. And so these are all concerns that 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 I think uh, frame this search for the binary and for particular categories to fit in phenomena that don't quite fit. And then the other, there's also concerns about social functionality, marriage. So in, what I found in my research is that people are really, doctors are really concerned whether and how these people could marry. So it's really something that I find in the clinical records, that are the patient records, where you think, why would somebody talk about marriage and marriage prospects in the patient records? But it is essential in this time period, because if you, you're supposed to marry and supposed to marry heterosexually, and if you're a woman, that's your path in life. And if you cannot marry, as one of my practitioners says, then maybe it's better if they live as men because they can be independent and make their, um, their money. So it's very functional understanding uh, in which they integrate these ideas. So Sandra, what is it, it's hard for me to understand this, what is it in the society at the time that felt this compulsive need to control, uh, you know, sexual orientation? Um, you know, uh, racial privilege, um, you know, uh, women's roles. I, I mean, looking back, I, I mean, I can, I can guess, and, and maybe you address this in your book, or maybe not, but what is it, I mean, is it, it do, do the people working on these categorizations, do they feel like this is a threat to their own personal privileges or to their worldview? Is that why there's this need? Because, I mean, in naming something and in trying to control the behaviors of other people, you're exercising a certain kind of um, authority. Um, there's an authority that comes from naming. And there's also a set of implicit assumptions that are in, the, in that naming process. So what were these people, what were these clinicians trying to control? What were they, why, why, why didn't they just let things go naturally? However, I mean, there, there must be some reason. Um, so that's, again, that's a big question. And, you know, what you're asking me about is in a way ideology or how to certain, you know, how, 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 to certain norms and shared beliefs come about in a society and how do they change over time? And so from my research with these particular clinicians, I was actually really struck by the fact that they come across, they deeply believe that life is not possible outside of these categories in which they live and which they accept as the norms in their society. And they deeply believe that they're helping these children, even so they're doing very invasive procedures and forcing them into a particular norm. They believe that this is the best that they're giving them a chance to become fully functional, uh, healthy, both in body and mind, uh, citizens in a way that they can grow up and be members of society. And if a society has certain norms and understanding of what is 
uh, correct and what is our appropriate way of living, then everything that transcends of then is seen as problematic. So that's kind of the bigger answer. And then, of course, homosexuality had been pathologized. You know, I mean, there is uh, since it kind of uh, pathologized and medicalized also since the 19th century, so psychiatry and sexologists. And so there are different ways of tolerance with which people, uh, medical experts approach uh, the huge variety of sexuality that we find in 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 humanity, but there is a, a, a notion that de these are deviances because the norm is heterosexual, heterosexuality, right? That goes back to, I mean, uh, part of that is based on uh, Christian norms or religious norms. Part of that is based on just accepted norms in society. And so that doesn't say that people live differently and that people, not th these are, uh, that, uh, or that groups exist in society that do not fit those norms. But I think that um, they explain the way and they are pathologized because uh, because uh, uh, they used to actually define the norm, the normal in society. And so, but I found it in my story, I found it really important to say that they, you know, they, these clinicians, they, they are treating children. It's an impetus to intervene, to help. They're actually thinking they're doing something good, you know, and they're doing, actually thinking that they, they are allowing them to live a functional life, which is really important, especially by the 1950s, where there's a lot of concern about child raising, how do you raise a democratic, healthy, well-adjusted, so that's another psych psychiatric term that comes about in the beginning of the century, well-adjusted citizens, and that's a shared belief. People share these beliefs, and there are groups who whose life kind of conflicts with these beliefs and who are part of this society, but um, they're... Um, they have a, a, a face limitations in the ways in which they can actually live their lives according to their own desires. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna stop here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bettany Hughes is uh, Bettany Hughes is a, a British historian who did an excellent series in the uh, 2000, 2000s and 2010s on um, kind of the history of ancient civilizations. And Bettany often started her series on BBC by saying that the study of human history is the study of life in all of its potentials. And Bettany approached the subject of human cultural development from the perspective of an anthropologist with the understanding that there isn't a norm for human, I mean, when you look back at human cultural development across time, and surely these clinicians, surely people who were, you know, educated scientists at the time and doctors understood that there's a vast range of how humans identify culturally. Uh, you know, the, the, the archaeological record is a clear position of evidence. And so making judgments based upon the ideas of gender that were around at the time is a specifically cultural choice. I mean, it's it's not really grounded in anything scientific. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious. So what are some of the, uh, moving, moving forward then in your book, does your book go forward in history or does it kind of stay there in the 1950s? Mm -hmm. 
No, it goes forward. So one of the let's, things that let's talk it. Let's let's <laughs> let's go forward then. Yes, let's leave it behind. So I uh, so one of the things I do in the book is that I I trace kind of what I call the the kind of dissemination of this idea of gender uh, within uh, within the clinic and uh, outside of the clinic in different fields and discipline within activism kind of undergrads and so I follow gender as it takes on a life on its on its own as this kind of very convenient term that people use in their work uh, and in their activism to think about the relationship between sex and gender between nature and culture and the ways in the, the diverse ways in which we could live um, so what are some of the what are some of the high points going forward with the ways in which gender begins to slowly kind of unravel and become multi-expressive and um it, does your book focus mostly on the west or does it focus on is it is it a global book it focused mostly on the west it focused on uh, actually on the u.s so mm -hmm. in a way i'm really interested i also make the claim in the book that this particular formulation of gender and the uses of gender to describe these uh these differentiations this binary is something particular american that comes out of a kind of cold world context of concern with uh, adjustment and uh, malleability of, uh, of, um, of um, behavior that is really important in this post-war, Cold War moment. And then acid transport is taken up and kind of adapted by people to their own uh, uh, needs and, uh, and backgrounds. And so one example is and that's kind of the most closest to its original usage so travels being picked up by robert stoller in the 1960s already and he adds to general he adds the term gender identity and it creates a broader very kind of a broader concept of gender in the sense he takes away just from this functionality perform performance of role and he says well this uh, let's talk about gender identity it's something that like people deeply feel who they are, and then gender role is kind of the social normative behavior. So you can say, um, I'm a man, but you can also say, I'm not a very masculine man. So you can kind of differentiate. And that also opens it up to this uh, following usages. So the next usage you see of gender is, of course, uh, in the late 60s, in the 70s, that's another example, in the establishment of new gender identity clinics, uh, which are start to offer some very limited form of gender affirming care to trans individuals. And they use the concept of gender and it's no accident that one of the first clinics is established at the Johns Hopkins Hospital by the very people who uh, were involved in the research in the 1950s. And so they're the kind of take gender to the next level and um, and uh, use it to postulate a new uh, way of thinking about, you know, gender identity and uh, researching. There's a uh, people uh, who identify as trans, and often to a very in a very limited uh, frame, uh, gender affirming surgery as well. And what's new about that is, of course, that this is offered at the kind of established. Uh, um, uh, uh, prominent research hospital in the US. So it's not that people have found gender affirming care in their own version in different countries or through other means before, but this this is kind of the novel thing about it. And these clinics are called gender identity clinic, right? So it kind of puts gender right out there. And then there's like all these like really interesting ways in which gender kind of slips into the common usage of different groups of people. And it's very fascinating because that's actually much harder to follow and identify. And so um, the most obvious example is of course, feminist and feminist activists who um, have been talking about sex roles and kind of the, the, the sex uh, stereotypes uh, before and actually don't really need gender to continue this discussion, at least uh, initially, but they pick it up and they pick it up, as I mentioned before, because in a way they have this clinical, the weight of the clinic, this evidence of this uh, very attractive idea that gender is learned. 
But on the other hand, they very clearly see kind of the normative category that gender role as it emerges from the clinical context is. And that's what they criticize right away. So they say, well, you know, if you're telling us gender is learned, then we can unlearn gender. Then we can take this category apart and we can, you know, and, you know, in this very 1970s way, <laughs> say, you know, then boys can be, boy, uh, can be, can be sensitive and caring and interested and in this traditional uh, female genders and girls can be wild and boisterous and can love other girls. And so, so they say we, we're taking this apart and the collision says, no, 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 that's not what you meant. But in a way, so that's, um, so that's one of the things that, that kind of slips into that in, in very contradictory and messy ways into this feminist activist approach. And then the third category, the third example I want to give, which I found extremely interesting and I definitely want to work more on, is kind of the kind of subculture, I want to call it the queer subculture of the time period, where people, and, and you can see that if you look at kind of alternative journals and magazines that are circulating in this, in, and you can find like gender just slips into these categories, right? It slips into the, in the, into the verbiage that people are using sometimes, and it's used very, um, uh, in a very diverse manner, sometimes just to replace sex, right? Uh, as we still have it today, or sometimes they, uh, it's used kind of, um, I want to say queered and adapted to so there's a group of there are groups of drag performers that start talking about gender so uh so there are so queer communities take gender and play with the category in really interesting ways so they uh refer to performative acts where they combine different ways of masculinity and femininity and uh, disrupt them and queer them uh, in, uh, in uh, and what I found particularly interesting is that the queer communities uh, take gender and make it their own right they say uh, they use gender in a way to uh, point to uh, the artificiality of these roles and categories. They mix these categories, they, uh, they, they do performances, they make fun of these categories, and they, they're very uh, curious and open in questioning these uh, kind of binaries and division. And so for me, it was very interesting to see how these communities make gender their own and give it very different meanings than this kind of normative origin that it has in the clinic. And I found it very uh, empowering to see these early usages of gender, um, you know, mere like 15 years after the term gender role kind of is introduced in a set of publication. Uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, we're talking today with the historian uh, Sandra Eder. Sandra's written uh, a new book about the history of gender. Sandra, what is the name of your book and where can people find it? Uh, the book is called How the Clinic Made Gender, the Medical History of a Transformative Idea. And uh, you can uh, find it in bookshops, go to an independent bookstore and buy it there. Or you can order it at the publisher, Chicago University Press, uh, and um, other online vendors, but go to a bookstore. Thank you. Um, so uh, we've gone up to about the 1960s or so, maybe early 1970s so far. Does your book go further into uh, further forward in uh, in American history, kind of finding out how gender begins to entangle itself culturally, or does it stop there? So my book stops in the in the in the 1970s, just because this would have been beyond the scope of the book. 
but uh, I think there's a lot. <laughs> there's definitely another book to write about the ways kind of the, the life that gender takes on, I call it the life of gender that takes on after it leaves the confinement of the clinic and the ways in which different groups make it their own and use it as a very dynamic category to describe different uh, and define different relationships between nature and nurture. And we, you know, and this is like something is ubiquitous today. We talk about gender all the time, not always meaning the same thing, right? When I talk about gender, I mean something very different than somebody uh, who's having a gender reveal party. Yes, totally. And so I think I think it's really important to keep in mind that we not always that this is a, a category that shifts and changes, and it really depends on who's using it to what purpose, uh, uh, what it actually means. I was um, interviewing a trans advocate recently, Ryan Ryan Salins, and Ryan was talking about. Um, like all of the different kinds of genders that younger people use now. There's like, um, I don't even know how many categories we, we, we were trying to think of them. And I mean, there are literally dozens of categories that people might use today for gender. And there's also almost as many categories for sexual orientation as well. Um, do you think that this is a direct consequence of this Kind of expansion and exploration of the idea of gender culturally uh, that began in the 1950s? Uh, I think it's a consequence of uh, a decade-long ongoing struggle of groups to uh, redefine gender and sex and sexuality and uh, for uh, gender and gender rights and sexual rights. I think that's the so I think that they are that we are able to have this diversity of categories and the people uh, can live uh, depending on where they are and who they are uh, in in uh, and embrace multi, you know this kind of a wide range of uh, identities I think is a result not only of the category and the redefinition of the category of the people who struggled for the redefinition of this category, right? And there's a long history of activism of people who have intersected and pushed against normative, these normative terms that are developed in the clinic that are, uh, they've, uh, you know, and they've offered alternatives, alternative ways of living. And so I think we should not forget that these groups are essential to uh, the kind of expansion, uh, cultural and socially that we see um, that we see today, and probably also, um, you know, the reason why we also experience in this backlash today. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support.
So one of the things I'm really curious about, and you may or may not have the answer to this question, you were you were talking about the gender identity clinics of the 1950s and uh, 1960s. And I know that in Germany before World War II, in 19, late 1920s Germany, there was a similar type of clinic that was opened. Um, and I think there was only one, but what, changed between 1920s Germany when I think really the first establishment of a clinic that might have been viewed as a gender identity clinic was opened and when they were you know kind of made more prominent within the medical establishment in the U.S. in the 1950s what was it about the way that these clinics were created in the 19 between the 1950s and the 1970s that made them succeed, at least successful enough to continue to exist, you know, all, all the way up through the, the, the modern era? So uh, the, 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 I think you're referring to the Berlin, uh, Berlin Institute for Sex Research in yes. the centers where Magnus Hirschfeld and others uh, were working. And, mm -hmm. you know, the answer is short and, and tragic. Uh, they were destroyed by the Nazis. The Nazis took over power. That was one of the first uh, the first intervention that destroyed the Institute, that burned all the books, that destroyed all the research. I think recently a new book has come out that talks about the history. I'm an Americanist. so. Uh, I, you know, I cannot give you all the details, but I think there's a lot of research being done on kind of the impact of this on research that this destruction had and displacement of the researchers who often, you know, had to flee the country or end over murdered. And so one of the, uh, in the 90s, some of these researchers actually come to the States. I mean, the most prominent is probably uh, Harry Benjamin, who is uh, um, a prominent researcher uh, uh, in what was then referred to as transsexualism or transsexuality. And he kind of is comes with this kind of German sympathetic history in a way in, in its limitation at the time, of course, uh, towards uh, helping uh, people to receive gender affirmative care. And so he's of the one of the first, he becomes very prominent in his research and he's one of the first who uh, advocates um, what's and also called sex chains, we now call gender affirmative care. And so, so there is like kind of a, a there's a break but there's kind of a like a, a continuation uh, in some aspects uh, through uh, some of the practitioners who continue to work in the U.S. So this tradition kind of that starts in the 20s and 30s is a general kind of um, field of sexology and really interest in in in, in all matters sexual. Uh, there's a huge break in Europe with the takeover of the Nazis in power. And so in the US it continues, but it's also uh, uh, not, in the, not in the same way and adapted to uh, kind of the, the American situation of research and gender and culture norms. And so when uh, clinics, we have this break and we have, you know, when, when the clinics are opened at the end of the 1960s, what I found really interesting in my research, it seems to be a moment, so there's obviously sensationalized interest in these issues, triggered by these sensational cases of Christine Jorgensen and um, and others. And, and you know, and there's still, like, even if people are sympathetic, the medical, the clinicians, the clinician researchers study these cases, uh, do it from a medical point of view. And if you do it from a medical point of view, it's it's pathologizing to a certain extent, right? And so, uh, but still, I feel like there's a moment, uh, uh, you know, there's very hostility, but there's also a sympathetic moment. Uh, there's some legal reforms that allow uh, um, access to, to, to these forms of care. And then there's, there's, there's a research interest, but there's also an impetus to, uh, kind of help these patients. And what I found particularly interesting already in the kind of argumentation in my case is in the 1950s, but then specifically with the gender identity clinic is this focus on, you know, the patient's happiness within all these kind of normative <laughs> prescriptions of gender and, and, and pathology, pathology yeah. is this, um, 
is this what I find again and again the argument the clinicians make is like you know these are real these patients are really unhappy they're very we have to help them this will make them happy make them you know it's good for society and make them functional citizen and there's this kind of recurring reference to patient happiness that I found really intriguing it's something I'm actually looking at more and more and I've found when they established this gender identity clinic at Hopkins, yes, to do it for research, yes, it's uh, John Money who wants to, you know, who thinks, you know, all things gender are his, and he wants to continue this, and he wants to be a prominent member in this team, and there, and it's, um, and it actually, uh, you know, it's actually not a lot of gender affirming operations happen, I think it's around 30 in, in 16 years, but there is this interesting way in which the press even writes about the establishment of the clinic and say, oh, we have to help these patients, you know, they'll be much happier afterwards. And it's a, it's, it's an it's a very orchestrated uh, uh, reception of the clinic because they know that you kind of the cover has blown and some journalists have been calling. And so they have a press release that talks about happiness, but this journalist also pick it up and talk actually Never mind the pathologist in very uh, sympathetic ways, and so I think it's an interesting moment where there's a kind of an agreement that you know this that then something needs to be done. These people need to be helped, right? I mean, it's within these norms and frames, so nobody says like you know like asks. I mean. People ask and interviewed, but they're not the ask really. Uh, if they go beyond the given framework, then they're, they're not given the care that they want. So the kind of you know um, uh, 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 made into a particular kind of use the term of the term transsexual patient, right? But uh, but it's still interesting that this moment you know that there is like clinics come up, Hopkins is I think it's 69, and all then it's Stanford, uh, there's one in Washington, there's one in Oregon, there's one in UCLA, also starts doing gender affirming care. So there's this moment where all these clinics open up and it's a clinical interest, but it's also um, something that I wanna look into a little bit further. And there's some really great people who are doing more research on, you know, kind of the, why are these cl clinics all being established and why they establish this kind of notion that we need to help these patients it's important for their happiness that's so interesting so you mentioned that there was one in oregon mm -hmm. in the 19 like right around 1970 or maybe uh late 60s early 70s do you, did this this program originates in oregon do you know where in oregon it was do you remember no, any to. information about it that's I, interesting. I, I, we'll have to, back to look you. into that. That would be a good good topic for a show for our, our local our local show. Well, we've gone through so much, uh, Sandra. And it looks like we're just about at the end of the hour. Um, is there anything else about the book that we haven't covered today that you'd like to share with us in the last few minutes? Um, I think the one thing. I really would like to share and that I think about a lot now that I've written the book is, you know, that that these things, these histories really matter. And they matter a lot, I think, to our understanding of the current kind of culture wars and moral panics about uh, transgender rights about what definitions like who gets to define what a woman is and what a man is and what it entails really and who a real woman who a real man is and there's uh kind of uh assault on the reproductive rights of female-bodied persons and i think it's really important to know that history and know that this are you know gender a lot is at stake in the definition and who gets to find uh, these categories. I think it's really important to know that history and to know that this is a dynamic shifting category that is formulated in relation to power relation to power hierarchies. And that is what being what is being played out what we see now. And so in a way, I'm when I wrote the book, I was touched by and and kind of moved and 
and, and driven on by these kind of ongoing debates about who counts as a man or woman, right? And this goes beyond that. This, uh, to kind of show these have always been contested his, uh, categories. This is not something that's new. It has a longer history and that hi knowing that history helps us in the way in which we engage with this backlash that I think we're facing at the moment. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking tonight with Sandra Eder, uh, author. Sandra, one more time, what is the name of your book and where can people find it? So the book is called How the Clinic Made Gender, The Medical History of a Transformative Idea. It was published by Chicago University Press. You can buy the publisher's website, but you can also go to your independent bookstore and get it there. Great, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, and also, um, Sandra, if people would like to find you online, is there a way that they can contact you if they have more questions or uh, they want to find out more information? Absolutely. They can find me at the website of the history department at UC Berkeley. Um, there's my faculty profile up there. They can just uh, my my email address. They can just shoot me an email and I'm happy to engage with them. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Transpositive. Thank you for having me. It was it was a joy. Hi, this is Emma. Um, I am a co-host of Transpositive, and I'm also the current president of the board of directors here at KBU. KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Your friends at KBU want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBU supporters from all around the world and let's rally together to build stronger communities. Our goal for this year is $70,000. Um, we'd like to help you meet our goal. If you can, just go to kboo.fm slash give or text kboo to this number 44321. And thanks so much for your support of KBOO Community Radio. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Falamith on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBOO Community Radio is 